Hi, this is the Ministry Misfit, Andrew Fouts. I'm also the Director of Digital Resources for CSRM and the producer of Overwhelming Victory Productions. And today we want to talk a little bit about Anchor FM. Part of our job here at Overwhelming Victory Radio is to provide ministries with easy and affordable ways to create their own media content. And one of these ways is Anchor FM. Anchor is a free one-stop studio with tools to allow you to create a custom podcast experience. They do everything from creation tools, distribution tools, and even marketing tools with ads such as this. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Welcome back to another episode of Ministry Misfits. We are back in the studio again today and uh, got you out here from shoveling snow for a little bit too. Yeah, I'm a little uh, cold and winded, so we'll see how this goes. We got what? We had had about 16 inches of snow in January Mm -hmm. and then it didn't really melt. And then we had a little bit of rain that took about three inches off of it. And then the rain froze, and then we got more freezing rain, and then we got another foot of snow two days ago. Yeah. So well, I think the problem is the last couple of years we've been spoiled with yeah. very limited snows, and none in December either this right. past was, year. Yeah. So to have some in January and February was a little different, but here we are. And, and you know, the, this beautiful studio that we have is because my wife and I were able to finally buy a house from friends of ours, and we didn't realize how long that driveway was until last night. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm a little sore. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, I've learned from being a homeowner, I mean, it's been three years now, but really the first, I'm going to say winter, living in our house is you're supposed to keep your sidewalks clear, technically. Right. That's your duty, uh, which has also created a lot of debates. We could probably do a whole podcast well, on whether you should keep your sidewalk clear yes. or not. And we, we found out today that our neighbor has moved out and not been living there for a month as he's got movers moving stuff out now, which is why... His sidewalks haven't been clear in a month, and I've been the only clear sidewalk on our side of the street, so I'm (laughs) starting to debate whether or not I even go out and do it today. (laughs) It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. But as we wind down on the close of here on season one, we've been kind of finishing up with a little bit more of a history lesson before we launch into season two. And today we are actually getting to why we did all this history before we closed out season one. Yes. So today we're going to be specifically talking on a concept that we have deemed called Cold War Theology. Now, Andrew, you, you've used this term on the last few episodes here, and I don't think we've really taken the time to explain it uh, and where the definition really comes from and what it is exactly. And it sounds like it's something that if someone goes to Google, types it in, <laughs> we're going to be the only thing that pops up. Yeah, uh, there's not going to be too many resources, but in its own concept it's not new however we have a trademark patent pending on the apparently i i thought for sure that i had taken it from somewhere and that's what we were looking up who actually was the first to do to deem it this so we could actually credit them properly and i discovered that apparently all of our guests have just been really nice acting like they understood exactly what i was saying when i said this is just cold war theology playing out because Apparently, we created the term, just not the concept. (laughs) 
Well, it kind of makes sense as far as the timeline of everything, and you can, I guess, in my mind, rationalize of when the Cold War started up to when it somewhat ended in the the 90s a little bit. So that right. that's where I, I guess, personally thought where it was at. But catch us up to speed a little bit as far as the prominence during the Cold War area and where the roots kind of go further back and into everything. Right. So first of all, before anybody's like, why are they talking about the Cold War? I technically was alive for the last year of it. Brandon wasn't, but I technically was. So we were not that far removed. And what we're going to show today is that we aren't actually removed from the Cold War at all. And this has nothing even to do with all the chaos going on over on the Ukraine border at the moment. So throw out that side of the Cold War for a moment while we talk through all of this, because we're going to show that it really never ended. It just changed targets. So what we're talking about with Cold War theology is it's a mixture of multiple different theological, and we use that term somewhat loosely, movements, more hermeneutic movements than even theological movements. So it has roots in replacement theology, covenant theology, dispensationalism, Christian nationalism, Puritanism, the muscular Christianity stuff that we talked about a few weeks ago with Dr. Linville, theonomy. There's a ton of different things that are all kind of mixed into this. And it also has different forms that it's taking in today's world. The most notable being the new theonomist movement, the major Christian nationalism movement, and even more, more, I don't even know, more broad, not broad, more direct, I mm-hmm. guess, line would be the QAnon movement is actually a direct result of this Cold War theology stuff that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so last week we talked with uh, Dr. Barr, and we specifically discussed the importance of church history within theology, mm-hmm. and somewhat, I don't want to say you need to start there, but it's an important step um, to know kind of where we came from to where we get today. And so specifically with Christian nationalism, I want to kind of pose this question around everything as we talk about it is, as we look at American history in general, and we're going to just kind of pinpoint that back to 1776 in a way, uh, and some people will say that it, Americans history, America's history is rooted in Christianity, and we must stick to our roots because that is where we came from. And I want to kind of pose around that question of what would we say to someone who is on that agenda? Because I think that's partially where we get the Christian nationalism from. Right. And, the, and this is where... Yeah, this is where we've got to start breaking things down, historically speaking, because the 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 stuff that even though we you know we've apparently we deemed Cold War theology does not start Cold War. This has a much deeper root going back even into the the New Testament. So it starts really with the Zealots, which most people are only familiar with either the story of the Zealots from the Maccabees, which is the the whole Hanukkah celebration. Or they're familiar with it due to Simon the Zealot, who actually becomes one of the disciples of Jesus. So the Zealots are a a Jewish, basically a Jewish guerrilla group that are set out to thwart Rome. Originally, they were trying to thwart the, the Greek invaders. Now they're trying to thwart the Roman invaders. And they... And the whole story of the Zealots ends with the destruction of Herod's temple, which I can't think of the name now. 
uh, or Herod's not temple, Herod's palace. Um, and it also ends sadly with the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so really 70 AD is where most people mark the end of Israel as far as what we understand Israel to be from an Old Testament sense. It ends really in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple by, by Rome. Then we move forward in history to the Crusaders. And everybody knows the Crusades are because the Pope is afraid the Muslims are overtaking the Christians in Jerusalem specifically. And so we need to go defend the Holy Land. And in doing that, they actually go and cause mass chaos in the Holy Lands <laughs> for about a thousand years or so. Maybe, or not a thousand years, sorry, I can't do math. 200 years or so. <laughs> a little bit of a difference. Then you move forward in history past that. You know, the Catholic Church is now pretty much the state. You have the Reformers. The Reformers are, it's about a 100-year period, most notably John Calvin, Martin Luther, um, Zwingli, you know, the guys that do all the big important work of saying the Catholic Church, you're wrong. And so the Protestant Reformation comes out of that. You fast forward another 200 years to England, and we have the same Reformation happening, but in a different way with the Anglican Church. This time it's over the divorce, uh, divorce laws for the king. And so now you've got a new state church there in England. And then we get to the Puritans, which really start out somewhat during the Reformation period, but they really start to take a beating later on in the 1600s. So and I, was gonna, I want to clarify one thing on that, too, because I feel like we switch gears kind of quickly there. That is more of our non-American roots. Yes. We, we, I was kind of talking about the American roots and the history there. Those five that we talked about, which we've got the Zealots, the Crusaders, Reformers, Anglicans, and Puritans, are and, kind of all wrapped up in the non-American roots. Right, so and far. I realized I said the wrong year for the Anglicans. That's supposed to be 1687, not 1867. So sorry. Um, but, you know, they, they start doing all of these different things. But we get to the Puritans and the Anglicans, and now we start talking, quote-unquote, American history. More, more, more F would be... Um, North American history, European style. So the Puritans go to leave England because of the fact that the Anglican church is persecuting them. They are not, you know, the Puritans are not a part of the church of England. They are a very Protestant style group of individuals. So they leave, they come to new England to start out these different, you know, these different colonies and specifically, what we start to see, and this is where we start to get more into why we're talking about this, is John Winthrop in 1630 talks about these new Puritan settlements as being the shining city on a hill, mm -hmm. which is kind of a paraphrase of what Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 5 as far as letting your light shine, you know, we don't hide it, all of that kind of stuff. So we've got this shining city on a hill concept coming out of the Puritans, but the Puritans are doing the same thing to other people that the Anglicans are doing or that the Anglicans were doing to them. And so we have the Baptists break apart from the Puritans around the 1600s. Some of them come over from Europe. Some of them are already here in the U S or in America, the new world, let's call it. Yeah, before and it was yes, <laughs> pre-U.S. new world. This is 1638. This is how we get the colonies of Rhode Island. 
is uh, Roger Williams leaves, gets basically gets exiled from the Puritan communities as a Baptist. He forms Rhode Island. And they were much more talking about this. They wanted to see a separation of church and state. They wanted the state to mandate the state and the church to mandate the church and not mix together. With one exception, and that was they did not want to talk slavery because slavery, they said, was not a moral issue. It was a business issue. And so the church didn't need to get involved there, even though that should have been a matter for the church. That's interesting to to see that point of all the way back then of right them wanting to step aside and wash their hands of it and of this right. is not our problem this is not a moral issue it's a state issue and so even if we disagree with it the church didn't get involved was really the the concept that the baptists had there then in 1730 so we're almost to america but not quite 1730 you have the great awakening movements and the 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 methodism movement which is where we get the methodist church from and now this is the other thing that people always, it's always really funny is that most of these different mainline denominations, which the Puritans are not a mainline denomination, but there is still, the Anabaptist movement is still there. They really haven't changed as far as where their stance is, as far as priorities. The Baptists still are very much separation of church and state and religious liberty. The Puritan movement is still about, you know, we want to to keep things pure. This is actually where we get a lot of the Amish movements and things like that. The Methodist movement always has been about individual conviction and social change, which is why they have so many disagreements all the time and why all of their <laughs> yearly meetings, whatever they call them, conferences, they always seem to make the news for how divided they are. But that's how they started, <laughs> was all about individual conviction and social change. Now, do you feel like this is a good thing that everybody is in a roundabout way stayed rooted to it, it, I guess their main purpose we'll get to that <laughs> we'll get to that so the next big movement that we saw is what we talked about with dr linville this is the muscular christianity movement in the late 1800s now in america timeline we're talking late 1800s of civil war into reconstruction more more like what we really should be talking it was civil war into jim crow because reconstruction did not work um and so we, we've got the muscular Christianity movement. We talked about all that where it was about more about character building. It was about showing people that you were worthy of their, their praise and everything like that. Even though they, a lot of them were also saying you need to be praising God, not us. You know, that whole thing. You can go back and listen to the episode here, all of that. But then out of the muscular Christianity movement, we talked about 1920, 19, 1920 with Eric Little is really when it stops. Mm -hmm. Even though Little goes on to the 1940s, 1920 is really when it stops. And 1920 is when we have the rise of the fundamentalist movement. And the fundamentalist movement is what most people are familiar with it today because it is a very loud movement. Um, but this is really where it starts. And to understand why it starts there, we actually have to go back into our actual history books, which is part of what we talked about with Dr. Barr last week. Yeah, so let's uh, give everyone a quick history lesson if they weren't paying attention in grade school. Give everyone right. a, a quick history lesson as we kind of start, like you said, in the 1920s specifically. Well, we actually well, got a little bit before yeah, that. Yeah, we got to start a little bit before that. World War One. America is the baby, you know, it's the baby nation, and we are pretty much an isolationist, pacifist style nation, although there's some different things. The muscular Christianity movement 
was a big thing of Teddy Roosevelt. Most people don't realize that Teddy Roosevelt considered himself a muscular Christian. Mm -hmm. The Rough Riders, the hunting, you know, charging up San Juan Hill outside of, you know, Spanish American war. For the most part, America thought of themselves as we were a baby empire, even though we weren't, you know, we were a baby empire that was a democracy. And we don't need to get involved with world affairs because Europe is way over there and we're way over here. And so we were an isolationist state and somewhat of a pacifist state until World War One hits. We try to stay out of it for as long as possible. Yeah, but then basically had to make a decision. And then we have to make a decision with all of the different, cons- you know, there's different conspiracies actually even as to why America finally gets involved. But, you know, we have to get involved with World War One, you know. It, most historians agree the U.S. aren't U.S. military is what turned the tide in World War One, and then out of World War One we suddenly have this newfound prosperity and newfound world world respect, and we get into the war, roaring or swinging twenties, depending on how you want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So during the twenties is also when you've got prohibition going on. Ironically, even though it's the swinging 20s you've got all these different things or it's about to start coming in yeah you've got all these different things going on but most notably for what we're talking about in this time is this is when the fundamentalist movement starts to rise up as a response to the the newfound lifestyle that the culture had seemed to be having and then you add into that the Scopes Monkey Trial, which is the trial of um, deciding whether or not evolution can be taught in an American public school. And then eventually you get into prohibition, which was pushed by the teetotalers or the fundamentalist church. And so as these things start going through, the fundamentalist church starts taking more of a direct impact on what is happening in the U.S. And they're also seeing major cultural shifts until. The Great Depression hits in the 30s and the 40s. And during that time, America is trying to figure out how do we actually do this whole thing? We don't have our, our, our prosperity seems to be gone quickly. Now, you do have some people, some churches saying, well, this is God's judgment on us for celebrating the way we did. Others are saying this is just a trial. Others are saying we just got to figure this out. What gets us out of the Great Depression, Brandon? World War II. The, World War II. Yeah, the economic boom of us being able to produce massive amounts of infrastructure and weapons. Because at the end of World War One, the League of Nations forms and everybody assumes that we've achieved world peace, which I still understand how they assumed we achieved world peace, but that's beyond me. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to that point. Though. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> um, you know, and, and most countries were told to disarm. Everybody was supposed to disarm. You know, Germany is blamed for all of it, which is what leads to Hitler being able to rise up. And in the midst of all of this, America is just over on their own shore, just laughing it up. Meanwhile, Japan also is going through their own World War or pre-World War II stuff, and they're building up a military and taking on China and Russia. You've got a bunch of different world events playing out, but the U.S. doesn't seem to care until... Pearl Harbor, and we have to enter the war. We enter the war. You've got D-Day. You've got VE Day. All these different things ends with the dropping of the nuclear bombs. The maps are divided up, and the Soviet Union takes over a large portion of Europe as a result. 
During this time also, England has, or the UK has taken over a large portion of the map as well, but they intentionally go and create a new Israeli state in Palestine and in Jerusalem, which we all know what that starts. Meanwhile, Germany is divided in half. America takes one half. USSR takes the other half. And that is where we see the Cold War begin. Yeah, so that brings us up to our point here of the Cold War. So that was, again, the quick little bit of overall history, some American history mixed in there to bring us up to what, the 1950s. 19, 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And this is where we, we start. The Cold War, you know, most people will say there were no shots fired, even though there were. Um, most of the Cold War was an ideological war. And so you've got democracy versus communism. You've got capitalism versus socialism. Christianity versus atheism, and then overall, everybody is just fearful of the this new nuclear threat that has now been seen due to the destruction in Japan. Duck and cover. Remember? Yes, yeah. duck and cover. <laughs> but we said, like we said, there were some shots fired. You know, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis in in Cuba. All of these different events take place, and they actually play an important role to what we're talking about. There's a distrust of the government and of the military now because all of a sudden we come out of World War II, these big victors. Korea ends not in a full failure, but we only are able to win back half of Korea. Vietnam is a complete failure. Cuba is a complete failure. And so now all of a sudden we go from this great nation of look at how, how well we are in the world and we're going to dominate. Now we are the shining city on a hill to multiple international failures. I'm going to point out one other thing, too, which we talked about, I think, in the middle of our season, which is technology. And I think as we see or just think in the back of our minds, technology, right. as that progresses throughout the world, it gives more of an insight and connection to what's going on in the government. And it changes the way that everybody perceives things. Yeah. That's what a lot of people say. You know, FDR would never have been able to win four terms in today's world. Yeah, because he was in a wheelchair, as sad as that is. Now, in today's world, maybe that would be a little bit different. But from 1960 until 1990, he was not going to be able to get elected in a wheelchair. Yes, exactly. So I think he changed all of it. Yep, we start with radio and then TV. And then I'm going to really jump forward with the Internet. And then (laughs) specifically the age that we're in now in the last Right. Five to eight years is social media and where that blows up. So I say that to say, keep that in the back of your mind. Right. And that does play a big role. Kind of goes that into does play this. a big role with even why, you know, certain branches that we talked about before within Christianity don't like technology mm-hmm. is because they see technology develop as we go through these different things in the Cold War and assume that technology probably is part of the problem. You know, during the Cuban, you know, during these wars, you also have things like the sexual revolution of the 60s. You've got Engel versus Vitale, which is the Supreme Court case that took the Bible and prayer out of school, public schools. The Civil Rights Act is signed in 1965, which actually caused a huge debate within a lot of churches, as sad as that is. Roe v. Wade was in 1973. You've got the whole Nixon scandal, Watergate in 74. And now all of a sudden, it's not just they can't trust the government. They can't even trust the president to be ethical anymore. Mm-hmm. Somebody that's supposed to lead and be this pinnacle of the country right cannot be trusted and then in 1980 you have the conservative resurgence 
mostly pushed by Ronald Reagan. Why Ronald Reagan was so popular is because he's the opposite of Nixon, even though they're in the same party. He is one that's talking about, you know, the the good old American work ethic. He's pushing for, you know, this re reemergence of this great pre, you know, World War II era country that is the is the shining city on a hill. As sad as it is, he actually uses a lot of the same rhetoric that Trump did of this idea of make America great again. He just didn't use those exact terms. And he gets the majority of the country actually behind him. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know that other than Washington, I, I haven't checked in a while. I don't think anybody has matched him for the approval rating or the amount of which he won an election. I was say, I'm, I'm pretty sure he still stands as the biggest right. Um, right. landslide basically for a presidential election. But then out of that comes the Afghanistan conflict when Russia invade or when the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, the US and the CIA actually if you didn't spoiler alert if you didn't know, the CIA and the US actually train up Al Qaeda's leader bin Laden to fight back against them. Um you then move from that into the Gulf War conflicts, which is around the time that I'm born. And then the Soviet Union finally dissolves in nineteen ninety one. Now, post-Cold War, you would think at this point we stop and we say, okay, now we've covered the Cold War, so we talk Cold War theology. But post-Cold War, we see a new enemy start to come up. You have this rise of terrorism, the people that we actually supplied the weapons to and the training to. I always like to say, too, during this, I think it's probably typically the post-war, maybe even before, there's always the war on isms. Right. And and this is another side. This is more of a politics scene. You've got the war on crime. You've got the war on drugs. You've got the war on poverty. Mm-hmm. All these different things, which does kind of play into the mindset, but that's more of the political mindset than than the, the- theological mindset. Gotcha. Um, the Israel-Palestine conflicts, they start to escalate even more. And then it all comes to a head with September 11th. We all know what goes on there. We then de- We then invade Afghanistan. We then invade Iraq, and then we fast forward to the next big landmark would be Obama being elected president, and then the next and the next landmark after that is the Trump era, and during that time in 2020, we also see this escalation of police brutality, which really starts about 2015 before he's elected. You go into then 2020 with the escalation again of police brutality. You have COVID which is its own fun experiment thing. And then (laughs) it all culminates with January 6th, 2021 and the insurrection at the U S Capitol. And that is where everything comes to a head to where we can fully see what is actually going on. Yeah. So that was a lot that we just summed up for your quick history lesson there. So we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back, we're going to kind of discuss again where we're at during this Cold War theology, a little bit about Christian nationalism, what that looks like, again, how we got here, and then how we get out of it specifically. Right. This episode of the Ministry of Misfits podcast and this awesome shirt are brought to you by a Courageous Clothing Company. Courageous Clothing Company is a Christian family-owned business that specializes in custom designs that they create as well as bulk screen printing of your custom designs as well. 
when you buy from Courageous Clothing Company, you're not just buying an awesome shirt. You also are helping spread the gospel across the world through the missions that they support, such as this here with Ministry Misfits, as well as with their own designs that have Christian-themed messages sharing the gospel in an awesome and relevant way. Or as we say within CSRM and Ministry Misfits, strategically relevant evangelism. Check out their entire line at CourageousClothingCompany.com. Everybody, welcome back from the break here. As today, we are still talking about what we have deemed as Cold War theology. We are, we are finally defining our terms that we didn't realize were our terms. Yeah, we're <laughs> taking a step back to continue to move forward. So we gave a br brief history lesson on uh, some different denominations and growing up at the church and also the American history side of that quick lesson of where we came through from all the wars and some of the big major um, political, say, political and social decisions yes. that went on throughout America to bring us out of the post-Cold War era to kind of where we're at today. So that briefly catches us up to speed yeah. so we're, we ended where are we going with next? we ended with last year january 6 the yeah. big the insurrection is where we were stopping our history lesson for now um you know we all of that that we just covered probably seems completely unrelated to what we are actually talking about when we talk a theological perspective on things if you think that that's the case, then stop this and go back and listen to our episode with Dr. Barr last week where she tells you why that's not the case. But we're actually going to now come into why all of this, we're talking about all of this. But first, we're going to define what some of the terms we talked about at the beginning were. Mm -hmm. Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity based off of its upbringing and that the government should take active steps to maintain it. So this is a different interpretation in a way of church and state of instead of the church should be separate from the state, it is that the church should be mandating what the state does, which is different than the traditional understanding of church and state, which we'll get to in a little bit. Theonomy which this was a term I really didn't think existed anymore until uh, a theonomist added me on Facebook and I started seeing his post, which <laughs> gave me a headache and a half. Um, theonomy is this belief that the Bible is the only, and we do mean only, source of authority. So the laws don't matter, nothing else matters, only the Bible matters. And because of that, the Bible should be the law of the land. And that includes Old Testament law as the law of the land. Yeah, which I'm glad you appreciate appreciated you saying that it's the only authority because initially it can sound And that's why a lot of these things sound good. <laughs> On paper, yeah. They sound good in theory until you actually start breaking these things down through our three tiers. Mm -hmm. That's when we start to see the problems and those problems mixing together is what have, has produced what we're talking about today. Um, covenant theology is the belief this is mostly out of the reformed camp and there are some different interpretations of it but the basic thing is the idea of the fact that the the covenant with the church has replaced the covenant with israel the church is now god's chosen people again doesn't sound bad on paper and most people when they say it do not mean it in a bad way they mean it in a very good theologically sound way but we're going to get to it 
um, replacement theology is a reinterpretation of covenant theology in that America has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. That really doesn't even sound good on paper, but no. you know we'll get to that as well. I think that kind of ties to the Christian <laughs> nationalism, but right dispensationalism. A lot of people are familiar with the term dispensational, or you'll hear pastors talk about the dispies, or maybe you attended a church that was dispensational up until the you know early nineties or late nineties. Dispensationalism is a hermeneutical approach, which hermeneutics is the way that we interpret scripture. So it's a hermeneutical approach to a literal reading, and we use literal in air quotes here, a literal reading of the Bible, especially in apocalyptic literature. We'll get to it. And then Puritanism, we kind of talked about before. The Puritans was an actual group of people in the, you know, 15, 1600s. But they were much. Uh, they were very much about a lot of the stuff we already talked about. But the idea of that the church should be able to render legal and state decisions. Uh, this shining city on a hill concept out of James Winthrop. So why all of those things mixing together is what we actually are talking about. This is what typically it looks like when we talk Cold War theology. It's a mixture of all of these different things. This idea that the American nation is defined by Christianity because that's how we started. And so because we started that way, we are now the shining city on a hill because we have replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And because of that, we have to defend Israel at all costs, but because Israel needs us, not because we need them. And in doing that, we are going to create this new Christian world order, a theonomist order where the Bible is at the center again, and everybody is able to to do what is necessary to to earn their faith. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes back to, like I said, that question I posed at the beginning of, all right, we're going through the history, and if quote-unquote America is rooted in Christianity. Again, I say that quoted because it right. somewhat is loosely, but people will take, um, yeah, prayer or the Constitution and just the American flag and just different things that are they, they deem as rooted in Christianity. So that's what we need to get back to is our roots. Yeah, how, how do we unfold or unpack that a little bit to um, – say that yes part of that was good but it's not necessarily where we should be rooted in our faith well we've got to look first at what we actually mean by our roots because if we actually look at the roots of america we go back to the articles of confederation and then what eventually becomes our constitution the you know declaration of independence or not declaration of independence that was predates all of that sorry the bill of rights is what i meant to say there i don't need any angry emails from our historians um yeah the bill of rights constitution the um you know all of that kind of stuff they are not theological documents and on top of that if we did want to put a theology there they are not christian theology mm-hmm. the people that did all of this are theists or deists or in some cases in cases pantheists or you go into thomas jefferson where he really is just an agnostic were there some bible believing christians that were part of the founding probably but the majority of the people that we we are talking about that everybody wants to throw up their picture as like church fathers during july 4th did not believe 
in Jesus as God. They didn't even necessarily believe in Yahweh as God, but they did know that there was a the a a creator, a, yeah. a creator that put everything into place, and that is what gives people their worth and authority. Only some people. True. Side yes. note. Yeah, and that's what I also think about this too with the CRT is we, a whole can of worms there, but. We only like to look at maybe one side of history and we right. say, let's keep the bad side of history out, but let's look at the Christian side that and I, I want to... And this is where we're years. at within the church now as well. Why is it that we are not allowed to talk about the systemic things going on in our churches? Mm-hmm. Because those are bad things. And if we talk about the bad things, people aren't going to want to come. And if people don't come, what we tell our congregations is that if people don't come, we can't share the gospel with them. But what most what most pastors really mean is that if people don't come, their ties don't come with them. Mm-hmm. And now, when I say most pastors, I'm talking most pastors that are preaching Cold War theology, not most pastors in the U.S. We're talking the people that are actually that this has infiltrated the way they think about theology. That is actually the status that we go. Why is that? Well. What was the whole thing within the the Cold War was all about? Communism is bad. That means democracy is good. So if we're true patriotic people, then we're going to tell our, our congregations that God has been the one that has implemented democracy. Capitalism is good. Socialism is bad. So we tell people that capitalism is God's chosen form of, of economics. And in doing that, we also now are promoting a business model for our churches, which relies on the tithes coming in more than the the impact we have on our communities. Hmm. Yeah, not that you're saying tithes is the bad thing. No, but it's the, you should be tithing. If you, you are not tithing, you should be tithing. But it's, I don't we, want to say the Those of us in it. ministry need to eat, and formula and diapers are very expensive. <laughs> you need to be supporting your church and your pastor. So we're not saying that. Yes. But we're saying that the 10% that is mandated in Scripture as a tithe is an Old Testament construct. What God calls for is a hundred percent of you as an individual and your finances and your, and your children and your spouse. It is a 100% giving up of everything, Mm -hmm. not a here's 10%. And then we keep the other 90% to build up our capitalist homes. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify on that real quick, but right. And so, you know, we have all of these different things coming, even, you know, atheism is the communist tool for everything. And so that means now we have to be a Christian nation if we're fighting against the, the godless communists. I think the other thing too, is it by creating these divisions among everything else, it makes it seem of, we get out of that, what you talked about before the Imago day of made, made in God's mm-hmm. image is it, it takes away. Um, all right. Th- they believe this or act this certain way or whatever. So I can't, see them as equals. being a, yeah as yeah. equals or even being a christian or spreading christianity to them in a way or loving them as my neighbor it just put creates a bigger even, division and, and this is why we started with essentials mm-hmm. because again nowhere in our essentials is there anything political politics are not a part of this you know when when there, there are people that will argue, oh, well, God God has set up a theocracy. Well, a theocracy is the church at the head. That's not what God set up. The only reason God gives Israel a king is because they wouldn't stop whining about it. 
God intended for the nation of Israel to be able to self-govern themselves due to the fact that they, due to love of God and love of neighbor, which are the two great commandments that we talked about with Dr. Linville. That was the intention, but the people would not stop whining because everybody else around them had a king, and so they needed one too. We've got to get rid of these different types of thinking. And a lot of this, unfortunately, is now hardwired in even within our seminaries. Because when does all of this start? We Again, we go back way further even into you know, the zealots of, of you know, Jesus' time and the apostles' time. But really, all of this stuff starts to pick up in the 1920s with the rise of fundamentalism as a re- response to the cultural changes within the nation. Why did we need to have these cultural, why did we need to fight back against these cultural changes? Because for some reason we had tied in the belief that if the nation is going to prosper, then that means that we have to make sure that it is following the law of God. And so if that's the case, then we have to fight back against the drinking. We have to fight back against the evolution coming in and attacking our children is the language where that, this is where all that language starts, attacking our children. You know, we've got to defeat the communism that's about to come into our schools and attack our children. We've got to fight back against the idea that the sexual revolution is coming after our children. We've got to fight back against them taking the Bible and prayer out of public school. All of these different things the key word there is we have to fight back to protect our children. Mm-hmm. But what does scripture actually tell us we're supposed to do when persecution comes our way? Have pure joy. Pure joy. We turn the other cheek. We offer them more than what they ask for. Mm-hmm. And then we turn around and we pray for them. But what Christian, what the what Cold War theology has produced is this idea that, and it, again, this is where the the muscular Christianity stuff comes in. We cannot surrender because if we surrender our faith, then what we are doing is we are denying Christ. If we deny Christ, he's going to deny us. Mm. But in reality, what we are doing is we are exchanging the core beliefs of our faith for a political prosperity. And and I'll say personally for myself, kind of in this post-Cold War Cold War era. Cold War is what I needed while I was shoveling. <laughs> That's true. I needed that you, an hour ago. You, you did need some Cold War. But the post-Cold War era, specifically with September 11th, was this past year was one of the first times where it kind of hit me where everyone was celebrating it and it was kind of this triumph where America's coming back and we're fighting and we, we're a tough nation. And for me, it was one of the first years where it hit me hard where I reflected back because I was pretty young at at that age of that was one of the first times for me that somebody of middle eastern descent was seen as bad because it's Mm -hmm. terrorism and that hit me for this first time this year of that's where my disposition and bias came in unfortunately of now i see that mark of september 11th as that's when my bias started my heart of nothing that anybody from that descent did to me or that nationality or heritage but it's like this fear that was created at an early age for me my, and that's my heart the key word yeah fear is the key word there and that's why we included all the post-cold war stuff as part of cold war theology because cold the cold war theology and the cold war mindset in the u.s never ended it's just we've changed targets 
Yeah, so I think the first, yeah, you know, for the first ten years or so, it was all about Islam, leading up into September 11th, going in through Iraq and Afghanistan. But then, as soon as the things in Iraq started kind of cooling off when Obama became president, when you know, and all 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 this stuff started happening, what happened? All of a sudden, now anything that is a, that we disagree with is now labeled as what? What's it labeled as? I'm gonna say heresy. <laughs> well, <laughs> heresy would be a nicer. Ter- it would be an okay term to use if we're talking theology, but that's not the term that we get. Everybody is labeled as a Marxist and a communist. It is no different than the McCarthyism of the nineteen, you know, nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies. It's just now we are coming after our own people again using the same terms and the same things without actually knowing what any of them mean. Mm-hmm. You know, I if if I actually had a dollar for every time I was called a Marxist apostate on the internet the past just in twenty twenty two. We would be able to afford not having to keep getting sponsors. <laughs> like, you know, the, people it, wouldn't use that term anymore then. You and, and, you know, and, and even with that, they don't even understand what they're saying. The, the people that are arguing that capitalism is God's chosen form of, 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 econ, of economics don't even know what capitalism actually is. You know, I think we, I, I don't remember if we mentioned it on air, if it was off air with Dr. Barr. I think it was off air, but. You know, there was a, there was a, a conversation where they were arguing capitalism as the, the superior thing. And they, when I kind of just was poking the barrel a bit saying, you know, you realize that capitalism has caused the same amount of atrocities as communism. They're just not as blatant. And they said, well, define communism. And so I literally copied a section out of Wealth of Nations from Adam Smith as the definition for capitalism. And they're like, where would you get something like that? And said, Adam Smith. <laughs> and their response <laughs> was, who's he, some CRT guy? For those of you that don't know, Adam Smith is the father of capitalism. But we don't even know that stuff because we have tied in republicanism and all of these other things into our theology so tightly because we have to beat back the communists to be to prove ourselves worthy Christians. But that's not anything that scripture tells us to do. And it's all coming out of the fear that we are going to lose either we're going to lose our faith because of all these things coming in or more likely the people in charge are fearful that they're going to lose the power that they've gotten. The other thing I hear a lot of times too is this we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, right? More of the spiritual. So, I feel like a lot of the stuff we've talked about is somewhat physical in a way, right? But also, people feel like there's people put in power and pol- politics and these structures that are, um, yeah, bigger than our more spiritual, I guess, or I don't know. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Know, yeah, and, and this is why we said this with Antoine with the people that are claiming CRT is the big bad boogeyman. It's it's been around for fifty years. I think if it was going to ha- to be a, a danger, most pastors would have heard about it before two years ago. And in addition to that, if we actually believe that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, and we believe that the gates of hell will not overcome the church, why are we so fearful of all of this stuff? We shouldn't have to fear it in order to be able to to reject it. And this is where we get into as uh, you know how we as far as how we get out of this. 
we've got to understand, first of all, what the role of the church actually is within a community. And the places that we get this are Jeremiah 29, not verse 11. <laughs> We're talking Jeremiah 29, where he, and I lost the verse. I think it's verse 7, where he says, Seek the prosperity of the city that I have put sent you to, for when it prospers, you prosper. You're looking for the prosperity of the city that you are in, not your own prosperity, the city that you have been put in. Because the reality is that if we believe that the church is called out by God and that the church is really citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth, then we are no different than the exiles of the Old Testament. We are in a land that is not our own longing to be able to return home. But what does God tell the exiles to do? To, to build houses, to plant vineyards, to marry off your children, to have parties, to celebrate all these different things, and to seek the prosperity of the city that he puts us in. You know, the other places we see this, you know, Matthew chapter 5, the idea of being salt and light in your community. You're, you know, you're supposed to be both, not one or the other. Genesis 1, the Imago Dei. Acts chapter 4, what does the church do? They come together and they take care of each other. And they take care of the people in their community, the orphans, the widows, those that cannot help themselves. That is the role of the church in the community. We talked about this with Dr. Linville during Ecclesiology is the function. We love God and we love others. Then we've got to look at, again, our role in politics, which this is where everybody is either going to start clapping or they're going to immediately turn us off and report us to the authorities. Which I'm going to say, too, I think kind of goes hand in hand with community because oh, getting does. involved with it, local it politics can essentially change your local community. Right. And, and this is part of where we get into that a little bit is we look at Micah chapter six, the entire chapter, not just for state verse eight, you know, Micah six, eight tells us what we need to do, but we don't know why God is telling us this without the rest of the chapter. You know, Micah, Micah chapter six, Micah is basically acting as a lawyer, as a prosecuting attorney for representing the state of God who is also the judge, which, you know, doesn't make sense in American terms. But that's okay because we're talking about the fact that American terms are not God's terms. Uh, but the, the, what he lays out is a full picture of what they haven't been doing in that first section, as far as our role in the community. And the fact that this is what God required of them from the beginning. And so this is the punishment, but then he lays out a plea bargain. If you will just seek justice, love mercy and walk humbly then we'll be, then we'll call it even. That's the whole reason why verse eight exists is that it's literally a plea deal that God is giving the people. We see this in Daniel chapter four. God, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, recognizes the fact that God is the one that sets up rulers and authorities and kingdoms and dominions, and God is the one that decides when they start and when they end, and nobody can tell him any any other way. This is why when Christians, when you go into the voting booth, you don't have to mark all of one side or one side of the other in order to do your Christian duty. And if you have to vote between the lesser of two evils, you probably are better off leaving that blank because the lesser of two evils is still evil. And your vote really does not matter in the long run because God is the one that determines kings and times and seasons. But your vote does matter in the fact that you are going to be held accountable for the people that you support. That's just Daniel chapter four, by the way. 
back to Jeremiah 29, we again, God tells us what he requires. Romans 13 tells us how we're supposed to interact with our governments and the fact that the government has authority to kill and destroy, and God gave them that authority. And so when they do that, yeah, we can not be okay with it, but we also have to understand that we they they have the authority to do this, and so we have to understand the consequences of rebelling against a government when they are not violating the scriptures. If they are violating the scriptures, things like violating the Imago Dei, violating, you know, telling you who and when to worship, those are the things when we can actually rise up. But when we rise up, we rise up in prayer, not with our AK-47s strapped to our belts while we storm the Capitol building. (laughs) We have to understand our relation to our country. Again, we just talked about this. This is Daniel chapter 3 through 5. You know, when, when when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown to the furnace, they still address the king as, O king. They don't, they're about to be per- executed by this king, yet he still demands the respect of being the king because God put him there. You know, Daniel chapter 4, we see it. Daniel chapter 5, we see Daniel do the opposite of what we saw in Daniel chapter 3. When, when Belshazzar brings Daniel in to read the writing on the wall, Daniel already knows Belshazzar is not God's chosen king for this nation anymore. And so you don't see Daniel refer to him as O king or say, I wish this was about your enemies instead of you. Instead, he's like, yep, you screwed up, you're dead. And I don't even want any gifts from you because you are not the anointed one. You know, the, then again, Jeremiah 29, Romans 13, same thing. We know how we are supposed to interact with our governments and with our nation. And then more importantly, we have to understand our role in the world because we are not isolationist. No matter what people want to say, The Bible does not talk about an isolationist, silo-style anything other than the fact of your personal belief in Christ is the only place where it's just about you. Everything else is about how it impacts the world around us. And so we've got to remember that our, our mandate, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, like we talked about, Dr. Linville. Jeremiah 29, again, go read that chapter. If I haven't hinted enough, you need to read that chapter. all four. Yes, before you comment about how wrong we are, go read that chapter before you comment. And then Acts chapter 1 is the same mandate that we see in Matthew 28 of go into all the world and make disciples and, and baptize them and teach them and start the process all over again. I feel like that's a lot to take up as far as changing your community, politics, country, and world. But I would say the other thing with that, too, is a lot of us is like, man, I just put up our hands. So much to do. I can't do all the work. But also realizing that we don't rely on other structures or other Christian groups to to be the change. You can start organically in your own life and in your own. Yeah, we have to. And this is why when we say our role, we're talking about the role of the church, which is why we've been focusing in on the history of the church for the past five, five weeks, four weeks, however long we've been doing this. We, we've been there's it's all been on purpose it's not been an accident why we've done it the order we've done it you know we we have to understand that the church is the one that we're talking about our role here so the other thing that we didn't have on our list is your role within your church your role within your church is to understand these things 
your role within your church is to do the three-tier paradigm hermeneutical work of un- of unpacking some of the stuff that is sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally being taught from your pulpits. Being able to come to the defense of others within your community that don't think the same way that we do on political issues. This is our role, our individual role within our churches is to be able to start doing this stuff biblically, theologically, hermeneutically, and seeking the prosperity of the city and the churches that God has placed us in. And unfortunately for some of us, that means the hard thing of saying, you may have to cut off that church and go find another one, which we don't say lightly. Mm-mm. We Both of us have had very bad experiences of having to leave churches due to these sort of things. But it's necessary. Because if the leadership of the church is going to preach a false theology as true theology, and then when it's brought to their attention, they double down, they have already they've already lost sight of what the call of that church is supposed to be, both for you as a congregation member and for their community. Yeah, I just feel like then you become fighting say your own side right yeah creating more division for yourself of it we definitely need to be like you talked about the salt and light and call out what is not true founded theology and scripture uh through the th- three-tier paradigm like we've talked about but also realizing too of like you can easily mm-hmm. fall a victim or into the trap of believing some of this if you keep hearing it long enough you know, this is where or why we focus so much on Second Timothy four, because when we when we look at Second Timothy three and four together, we get first and Second Timothy three a biblical picture of the Bible, as weird as that is to say, a biblical picture of the Bible. It talks about the fact that we are supposed to honor the stories that are in it, honor the people that came before us and taught it to us, and remember those things and hold on to those things. And that it is useful for teaching, pre, you know, teaching, correction, rebuke, training, and righteousness. Those four things. And then you move into the next chapter, which is not a chapter in the original letter. And Paul tells Timothy, again, hold on to that and preach that because it's going to get you in the same place that I am, which is prison. But do it anyway. Why? Because the call of a minister is to preach the message, whether it's convenient, which is the teaching side of it to correct and rebuke, which are the other two, all unrighteousness, using scripture. And then to fulfill the work of an, or do the work of an evangelist, which is the training in righteousness. So now we've knocked out all four. And if you do that, then what happens? You fulfill your ministry. And so when we talk about doing this stuff and even going to, talking about even the infighting within the church, which is what Twitter has pretty much become anymore, um, which sometimes is fun and sometimes is just like I'm going to bang my head against the wall forever. If we are not doing it out of scripture, when we are talking with our brothers and sisters, then we have no business talking about it. This is why there is such an uh, there is there is a major issue right now on social media or on Twitter, especially with a select group of pastors who I'm not going to, and seminary professors that I'm not going to name on here 
but they are not using scripture when they start tearing down people like Dr. Barr that we had on last week. Instead, they are twisting her words rather than trying to show in scripture where she has fallen. We don't show people their faults by causing more faults. We show people errors in their ways by using scripture as our mark to correct. And by using it in a correct theological framework, not from a Cold War theological framework that most of these people are coming from. So this was a little heavy. <laughs> yeah, and I think it takes a lot to unpack, too, because yeah. some of what we said, it's root. I'm going to go say it again, rooted <laughs> in years that a bit of theology teaching that's been passed down. So a lot of it is you got to unravel that and, and take it back out of uh, what we might believe is truth. Right. And, and this is why, you know, this is why we harp on the, the three tiers. This is why we harp on theology matters. Bad theology hurts people, you know, all those sort of things. This is why we spent an entire episode talking eschatology. This is why we spent an entire episode talking nonprofits pH, you know, these, these things are way more common than we want to admit. But we have to acknowledge they're there if we are going to be able to get past them. Not defeat them, get past them. So, next week is the last episode for Season 1. And we have a much more lighthearted, fun episode planned. We're going to be talking with a, a local pastor who has discovered a new, new fun medium for advertising his church. It's actually an old medium, but he's the only person in the world I've seen do it correctly. So we're <laughs> going to talk to him. Um, that's next week. If you want to support Mr. Misfits, you guys know the drill. The best place to do it is at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mr. Misfits. Or if you want to do it for a tax credit, you can go to csrm.org backslash donate. Click on the uh, domestic staff tab, and then you can find my name there. That money goes towards Misfits as well as the entire CSRM mission and vision worldwide. Brandon, it's cold. And we've got to go back out there. Yeah, you need your, your cold wear. I need the to cold go wear to go out there. You but need my Ministry Misfits beanie. Yes, but we we made it through, and I only stuttered a little bit through the lack of oxygen. So we will see you all next week when we have a little bit more fun planned out. Ministry Misfits podcast is a production of Overwhelming Victory Flicks, Overwhelming Victory Radio, and Ministry Misfits Media. Dr. Greg Linville and Andrew Fouts are our executive producers, and Brandon Simmons is associate producer. Our music is provided by Morning Light Music and is titled Rain. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at ministrymisfitmedia at gmail.com or by following at Ministry Misfit on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can support Ministry Misfits at anchor.fm forward slash Ministry Misfits or for FO1C3 credit by going to csrm.org forward slash donate and selecting Andrew Fouts in the campaign menu. To learn more about Overwhelming Victory or to listen to our sister podcast, visit overwhelmingvictory.org.